Hello, this is the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Russell. I am a mom of four children with OCD and other anxiety disorders, a wife of a husband with OCD, and a former elementary school teacher. This podcast is about learning to untangle our thoughts and worries, and then sharing this understanding with those we love. It's also going to be about the transformations that can occur when we invest our time and resources into making connections, being vulnerable, and ultimately finding healing for ourselves and our family. You can expect to hear from me each week. I will share with you actionable steps you can take to untangle your anxiety and live a more free and empowered life. I'll be bringing on guests, both people just like you and me, that walk the road of anxiety every day as well as mindfulness, parenting, and mental health experts. I started this podcast because several years ago, I could have really used someone to connect with who understood what I was going through, something to remind me I wasn't alone during those days when my family was so lost in the labyrinth of anxiety. I hope you learned something, let go of the guilt you are carrying, and find more peace and resilience. Now take a deep breath. It's time to start untangling anxiety. On today's podcast, I welcome Stephanie Parsons. Stephanie is a licensed clinical social worker with a master's degree from the University of Chicago and has experience with clinical capacities in multiple countries, including Canada, Slovakia, and Thailand. At her core, she is most passionate about treating OCD and anxiety-related disorders, having spent the last few years of her career becoming an expert in exposure response prevention therapy. Stephanie firmly believes that all humans are capable of doing hard things, and she recognizes that for many, therapy can feel overwhelming and intimidating. That's why it's important to her to offer a space of non-judgment, support, and humor while walking through challenges with her clients. You'll see this come through in our interview today. I'm so excited to share Steph with you. Let's get started. Hey, Steph. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. So I have, I will have already done an intro kind of just about everything about Stephanie Parsons. And um, yeah, so I thought maybe we could just, we'll just dive into questions. Cause I think my first question for you is like, I just would love for you to share your story and what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing, kind of what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's so funny. I knew that that was going to be your first question. And I don't know how to answer that question because (laughs) I never get asked. It's always me asking that question. Yes, yes. I was like, oh, my story. I don't know. Um, Yeah, my name is Steph. I'm a therapist. I specialize in OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, It was honestly not very planned. I don't, I don't think I heard the word OCD one time in grad school. I don't think this was ever mentioned. I never took a class on it. I definitely didn't study exposure response prevention therapy. Um, I really thought when I was working right after my graduate degree, I thought I was going to be working with um, kids with attachment disorders. I have a really big passion for attachment theory Um, my first job that I took was in like foster care, um, programs with a lot of really intense, like court mandated Mm -hmm. abuse situations. Um, but it was during the pandemic and it was all virtual little, little kids. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is not quite panning out the way that it was. Um, and at the time I had some really good friends in my life who were really suffering with OCD. And I was in really close proximity to them um, because lockdown. Mm -hmm. And I just was watching this monster just take over everything. Um, So I was just browsing for jobs online one day. I actually kind of applied to the OCD and anxiety treatment center as a joke. Um, I applied really late at night and then kind of went to a friend and I was like, how funny would this be if I got this job and then I could learn how to help you? This would be hilarious. Um, they actually threw my application directly in the trash, which I've since joked with them. Many wow. Times. Um, they were looking for a fully licensed therapist and I was just out of grad school at the time. I think it just like automatically filtered 
um, into what they weren't looking for. Um, but I called, I had an interview and yeah, they offered me the job on the spot and I fell in love with that job. I am so passionate about treating OCD. I've since realized that so many people in my personal life (laughs) suffer from this way more than I thought. Um, and yeah, I worked at the center for three years. Um, I adore that program. I, it was just incredible to watch people's lives just turn over in such a short period of time. Um, it's creative, which is fun for me as a therapist. No, no form is the same, right? Yeah. So it's my brain moving. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it got started. Um, and you've caught me in kind of a little in between where I actually, mm-hmm. I'm just about to transition into working, um, for a practice called Ellie. Um, mm-hmm. and I'll just be doing outpatient therapy there, but I'm sticking with OCD. So my whole caseload is OCD and, I mean, probably not surprising to you, but a little surprising to me, I, I'm full, 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 like at the brims. And I've, I'm particular. I've said, you know, I'm really only treating OCD and there are so many people who need someone who knows how to treat OCD and they cannot find someone. Um, so it's been kind of fun to see. There's a lot of Um, my colleagues at my new office at Ellie who also are working with OCD. Um, So it's kind of fun to still have a community of people who are focused on ERP. Um, And I think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I can't imagine that I would do anything else. Well, I hope you do because you are absolutely gifted at it. And that is so interesting how you say that it's creative because it is like creating exposures and kind of sorting through someone's brain essentially. Yeah. Is yeah. what you're doing. That's that's awesome. I love that. So I have questions about Ellie. So mm-hmm. or I guess just about what it will look like because yeah, we both have experience with the OCD and anxiety treatment center. So I know how that program worked and like for some of my people that went there, they would go 5 days a week three mm-hmm. hours a day for the yep. intensive outpatient. Yes. And then of course there was, um, outpatient that you could, there was like, I, it was like six months waiting list or something yes. to meet yes. with somebody on a different like level or frequency. So, yeah. so how will that work with your own independent practice? I guess it's going to be dependent on your clients, right? But yeah but it won't be, it won't be like IOP, right. It would still be daily or like, it's not even going to be daily. So it's really interesting in, I mean, in mental health in general, not specific to OCD, Mm -hmm. we're always talking about three different levels of care. Okay. Um, And I find this really interesting because the more that I talk to people about therapy, there's so much language that is not accessible. Mm -hmm. People say, Oh, I'm going to therapy we don't, we don't know what that means, right? What kind of therapy there's. And so it's, it's essentially like you're walking into a hospital, you have a broken leg, but you're in like the cardio wing. Right. Right. But you have no idea because to you, you're just like, I'm in, I'm in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. When you've even specified like how, um, I talked on another podcast about how another gentleman that went to the OCD and anxiety treatment center, how he had tried talk therapy before and it actually made his OCD worse. Whereas we know talk therapy has a place for depression or different other mental health issues, but specifically for OCD, that's where we get into the ERP. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Which I mean, for, for just a normal person, it's hard to distinguish, you know, what, what are all these abbreviations? What yes. are all different kinds yeah. of therapies that have the weirdest names? It's not, it's not like there's, okay, no. I'm going to do OCD therapy. It, it has to have a weird acronym. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, so in levels of care, essentially outpatient is the bottom one. Okay. Um, so outpatient therapy is, you know, I'm having symptoms. I want to work on them. I go to therapy once a week. I go to therapy once a month. Um, every other week, kind of at a frequency that feels good to you. Um, you sometimes have clients who want to do twice a week. Um, so sometimes you can kind of bump that a little bit, but it's just an hour of therapy with your therapist. 
this. Okay. Um, so essentially what happens is it's a really fancy phrase, but in, in clinical talk, we say when those symptoms become so intense that they're prohibiting you from being able to complete activities of daily living. Okay. That's when we say, we're going to bump you up. You're going to IOP. Right. Um, And activities of daily living can be anything. So like trouble sleeping, eating, going to school, um, your relationships, going to work, um, anything that feels like I need to be able to do this in my life. And my Mm -hmm. symptoms are so intense that I can no longer function in at least one of these categories. Okay. Um, That would signal to an outpatient therapist, Hey, this isn't enough support, right? This, this may no longer be effective because the Mm -hmm. symptoms are too big and we're not meeting at a frequency enough to really give you the support you need. So then we would refer, okay, you got to do an IOP. Um, and IOPs come in all different shapes and forms. So the ones that you and I are familiar with, it was like you said, five days a week, three hours a day. Um, some programs are three days a week for a couple Mm -hmm. hours a day. Um, so there's kind of a different level of frequency, even there, depending on, you know, where you live and what programs you have access to. Okay. Um, and then the higher level of care up from that is inpatient. Um, so if you're in an IOP, right, as I was working in IOP, there were times where I would say, you know, this has gotten to an acuity, um, that you're no longer safe, right? That's really the, the reason why we would bump someone up is, you know, this is a safety concern. These symptoms are so intense that, that I'm worried when you're here for three days, when I send you home, I'm not sure that you're going to be able to manage safely in, you know, all of those 21 hours that you're not with me and under my care. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're always, no matter what diagnosis you have, you're always functioning in one of those three levels. Mm -hmm. Um, so IOP is an awesome program. I wish everyone could do IOP. I wish it was accessible as far as like time and finances to everyone. I think it's an awesome jump start. and you don't do IOP forever, right? Right. We need need to go to school. We need to have jobs. Um, and so outpatient really is a place for it to be more Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been fun for me is that, you know, so many of my clients from IOP, they did so awesome and they're working so hard, but they still need support, right? Just because you graduate doesn't mean your symptoms are gone. Um, So (laughs) things happen in your life. You, you know, you change jobs. Oh, okay. Now my, my OCD is attaching to a new thing. It's morphed themes. I don't, I'm not quite needing to go all the way back and redo the program. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do need like long-term support and within an outpatient field, you can, you can kind of do whatever you want. So Mm -hmm. because I'm still going to do OCD, it'll look similar in that there's going to be exposures. We're not going to sit and chat on the couch. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, maybe someone comes in for a session and we talk for 20 minutes and then we say, Hey, well, let's go outside. We're going to walk to the grocery store together. We're going to touch some things that your OCD is saying we shouldn't touch. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, Oh, you know, you're, you're feeling really afraid to ask that boy to prom. Let's, let's write a text. Let's do it together right now. Um, So that piece is still going to be important. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of flexibility as the professional to kind of say, you know, what does this person need? Who's sitting in front of me? Yeah. And actually opens up to even more, like you said, flexibility and creativity on your end. Yes. That's, yeah. that's awesome. I love that. I love that. Okay. That's, that's really exciting. And I love that. Um, yeah, just from my experience, absolutely. The, my husband and all four of my kids still need support. Absolutely. Yes. 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 And so that has such a powerful place and, and such a need. Yeah. And you know, the radical acceptance piece of that is that for some people that might be forever. Yeah. Right. Is there's no shame in, you know what, it makes me feel good to have a session once a month, always on the calendar. Mm -hmm. And sometimes life gets hard and I want to do it more frequently. And other times I'm doing pretty good and it doesn't need to be all the time, but to know that you have someone, I always tell my clients, it is not the time to find a therapist when you're in a crisis. No one wants to do that. It's you're already behind the ball and then you're having to shop around and it's being a therapist. It's it's horrible to try to see all these people and explain your life over and over again. So when you're feeling stable, 
that's the time to shop around, be really picky, pick the person that you feel you've got this genuine connection to. And then when you're in a crisis, they're already there, right? You've got the on your back. (laughs) Yes. No, I totally agree that. And I think, I think what's a blessing in our home currently is that, (laughs) well, you know, it's a silver lining to all of the OCD that's in our house, but we, in essence, support one another a lot. Whereas if, you know, Mark comes to me or Olivia or somebody and, and they ask me a question and they're trying to sort out, is this OCD or is this something else? Like really, because of all the tools that we have, like we can sort that out quite frequently together, but it is beautiful to be able to, cause there are times where we kind of talk back and forth and we're like, Nope, we don't understand what's going on. <laughs> we need backup. Yeah. Yeah. And so. I think, I mean, call, calling it backup, I think is really appropriate, right? Because that that's one of the benefits of having so many family members who know yeah. what's going on is there's so much support there, especially that's one of the things I loved about um, the treatment center is that there's so much familial involvement. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's really milking that the whole family is going to change, right? The yeah. whole family is going to learn the vocab. We're all going to get on board with this treatment. Um, but then, yeah, there's sometimes where you're just too close, you know, yeah. and oh, even yeah. as a therapist that happens often, right? I've, I mean, I'm surrounded by therapists. My closest friends are therapists. You'd think, you know, that, that would be a good shot for us to kind of just be able to help each other. And sometimes it's like, no, I know you're good at your job, but you're too close, right? We yeah. too close to our own stuff. We just need someone from the outside to kind of piece the puzzle pieces together. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, ah, yes, mm-hmm. now we can keep working with that. Yeah. Do you think, well, will you incorporate then families and support obviously with, I mean, yeah, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite things about the center. I loved teaching that parent support group so Mm -hmm. much. Um, so yeah, any normally with my little kids, I make it mandatory. I don't even let them have sessions alone until I feel like the parents really know what's going on and Mm -hmm. can implement stuff at home. Um, cause one of the things about outpatient is you have to be able to do homework, right. Yeah. You have to have the capacity to go home and do those exposures. Um, and if you can't, that might, that might be one of the reasons for IOP, right. Is you need coaching to be able to yeah. do this. Um, so yeah, definitely incorporating the families with the older kids, maybe less so, especially if they've already been through the program. Right. Um, and our, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, no one exists in a vacuum, right. So if we're doing any kind of therapy and you've only got that one voice and perspective in front of you, I think we can miss a lot of really important stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's exciting. Okay. So, so let's talk like a little bit more. I want, would love your professional input and just like explanation of what are like some of the, I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit. I was going to ask, what are the indicators that someone needs um, professional help with OCD and anxiety? I know we talked a little bit about how you said like when it becomes, well, actually maybe we could talk about just outpatient. Cause we talked, we talked about the IOP intensive outpatient. That's when um, your anxiety or your OCD is literally getting in the way of you performing yes. tasks, living your life in such a way that is reasonable. Right. So what about like for outpatient? So that, you know, next step down, Yeah. what would be, um, you know, good reason or, uh, warning signs? I don't, I don't know how you would call it. Yeah. Someone to reach out and to kind of, like you said, start researching and find a therapist mm-hmm. so they can kind of start um, talking about this and working through it if and when, you know, like um, a more intense, um, what is the word? Like, um, I guess for when like their OCD and anxiety gets more intense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an awesome question because I think there's probably a lot of people who feel like something's not right, mm-hmm. but they feel like it's not bad enough, right? right? 
Mm -hmm. Um, we're kind of our own worst enemies in that way. Sometimes of feeling like we're not inherently deserving of support because someone else has it harder. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's especially common in OCD Mm -hmm. because people spend years essentially being the, their own gaslighters, right. To tell themselves, oh, well, everyone's brain has got to be doing this. Right. I'm, I'm just, maybe I'm just not dealing with it as much as everyone else says, what's wrong with me. We we tend to really internalize and place blame. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, I mean, a really broad stroke answer to that would be any of the symptoms that would be apparent, but just at a lower acuity, right? Oh, I'm, I'm starting to feel anxious at school. I'm still going to school, but it's hard. I want it to be easier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm still going to work, but I'm not, I'm anxious a lot at work. I'm having panic attacks at work. Um, I think that would be a good measure. Um, the thing that I always told clients who were on the fence is if you do go and you can do this in either location, you could go to an outpatient therapist like me and do Mm -hmm. an intake. Okay. Yeah. Or you could go straight to the center, right? They have an online application. And I mean, we're talking specifically for the center that we're familiar with, but you could do this in any program, right. That you could just call and say, I don't know. Right. Right. So I think sometimes the reality is we're not, you're not a professional. Right. And so being able to say, I just want eyes on this the same way that you would go to a doctor, right. You'd go to your physical doctor and say, something might be wrong, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. Can you tell me what I need? Yeah. Um, And then it's their job to kind of assess and say, okay, this is what I've gathered. Um, for some people that will mean this is the diagnosis, right? Maybe they don't even know that yet. Mm -hmm. And to say, this is, this is what I've gathered. This is the conclusion I've come to. And this is the level of care that I think is appropriate. Um, and that's, you know, my, or any other therapist's ethical responsibility to say, you know, this might, this might be out of my wheelhouse, but my job is to tell you to go to this place or this place or this place and to help guide you to the right area. Mm -hmm. So I always say, if you're not sure doing an intake, doesn't bind you to anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. more information. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that came to mind when you mentioned that is a podcast that I listened to of yours, Mm -hmm. um, where you had a guest on there who said, you know, if someone comes to you asking for support, believe them, right. That it, it might not be the support person's job to say, well, I don't know, you seem fine. Or mm-hmm. like, you're still going to school. You're still, it must not be that bad. Right. I think something that I'm really passionate about that I love about Ellie that really attracted me to them is their main mission is really about accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think we're quick to judge what's bad enough, you yeah. know, oh, for sure. it was accessible. If it wasn't so expensive, if we could yeah. find a person that we were connected to, I mean, I say all the time, I don't see why everyone shouldn't have someone in their corner if that was possible. Um, I know obviously that's a massive privilege right now to be able to access that. Um, But I think as a general rule, if someone says help um, to believe them, right? To take them at face value and to say, you know, the the chances are you've been suffering longer. Yes. Even aware of. And so even if it doesn't look like- what, whatever my judgments say are worthy of therapy and professional help, um, to kind of at least give them that space and let the professional decide. Yeah. That's been my experience with like my loved ones too, is yeah. When they do ultimately come and ask for help, it's been a long time. Nothing feels worse than finally building up that courage to say help and then have someone say, no, yeah. you seem good. Uh-huh. Right. It's like, oh no, we don't, we don't want to wait until it's obvious that you're not okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's just a good general rule, but I think one of the misconceptions is that you have to already know what is wrong or how serious it is before you go to therapy. Right. And, and I just, I think in this society and culture, people have so much more knowledge about physical health. It's yeah. always easier to say, you know, if you have a stomach ache, there's a large chance it's nothing and it's going to pass. But if you have stomach ache for a couple of days, a lot of people would go to Instacare, 
Yeah. You would just pop in. And I bet a lot of the time they go and the doctor's like, you're good. You're, this is not serious. Go home, take a nap. Um, and other times they say, Whoa, I'm so glad you came in. And so we're really used to doing that with our physical health. Right. I think, I mean, sore throats are a great example. How often do we walk around with sore throats? We tell ourselves it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, other times you go in and you get a strep test or you get whatever other test, which could conclude that there's something wrong, but we're not the ones making that decisions for ourselves. That's a good perspective. I love that. What should we be looking for? Like when we go and Google mental health intake or, you know what I mean? Like what, what should we be looking for? And if it is anxiety and or OCD, should we be looking for that specific training? Um, you know what I mean? What sorts of things? Oh, this is such a good question. We could talk for a long time about this. Um, so (laughs) I think I'll have you back on. (laughs) There you go. Um, okay. I think if you know what it is, then yeah, you're going to look for a specialist. I think the hardest part is if you have no idea what you're dealing with. Okay. Or I mean, we know in OCD land, how often this is getting misdiagnosed. Yeah, I know. And that's kind of why I wanted to ask you that. Cause I, I even have, you know, a friend of mine that was seen, I think a doctor, I think the doctor had like MD, but mm-hmm. I don't think they were a therapist. And I think they, and they gave them a mental health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And come to find out like it was not accurate and who knows how they delivered it or do you know what I mean? But, but oftentimes when we do, when we sit in front of doctors or professionals, we want to trust them and want to believe them. But I do know that there are a lot of gray areas or I don't even know. There's just, yeah. So what's just kind of, I don't know, some of your basic. Yeah. So I think, again, so much of this, I I didn't mention, I'm originally from Canada. So it's been such a interesting and devastating experience to witness the just flat out not accessible nature of some of the services. Really? I, I say all of these things with so much awareness of the immense privilege that it takes right now to be able to access some of these things. Um, I think if you can get a full neuropsych assessment, that's awesome. I think that's a really great place to start. If you feel like there's a lot of stuff going on, you don't know what's what you can't tell the top from the bottom. Um, that is a pretty comprehensive assessment it's long. It's not just 15 minutes sitting in front of a doctor. Um, they do lots of different tests. Um, these are expensive. A lot of the time they are quite booked out a lot of the time. Um, I think that's an awesome place to start. Um, a lot of people do get mental health, very general mental health diagnoses, typically from like a physical MD doctor. Um, I think that can be a great place to start too. Right. But I think in general, kind of this analogy of going to the hospital and making sure you're in the right wing, right. That you don't want to stay in the emergency room being triaged eternally. You want to be sent to the specialist, but sometimes you need to start in the emergency room and say, I don't know what's going on. Someone direct me where I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I really loved about the center um, is that you can go in and get such a specialized assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have that awareness of what you think is going on, I think going to somewhere that does specialize in what you're dealing with is yeah. a huge advantage, a huge advantage for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, again, though, it's our job as professionals to point the person in the right direction. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, there were so many times in IOP when I'm working with the client, they, them and their anxieties never liked this, but there were many times where I would say, you know, I, I don't know what this is, right. I, I know this is, I know we're in the right wheelhouse, but it's hard to distinguish between some of these different anxiety disorders. And I would say to them, you know, the treatment 
is in a lot of ways the same. Right. So we're good to go, we're going to keep on building up this skill set, but it's going to take me a couple weeks, you know, to have eyes on you to really see how these pieces are putting together. Are we dealing with generalized anxiety disorder? Is it social anxiety? Is it OCD and all the different forms that it can come in? And those can look the same in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think letting the professional have time and that's something that our system doesn't give a lot of the time, right? It's, you're going to often get a blanket statement, generalized anxiety disorder. If the professional has such a short period of time to have eyes on you. Um, and that's to no one's fault, but these are complex issues. And oftentimes the client doesn't even know how to express what oh, they're yeah. right. right? They're like, I don't know what this is, but it's very uncomfortable. Right. And it feels like this, but it could be this. So that differential diagnosis piece can be really important. Um, but as far as specifically OCD, we are always looking for ERP, which is exposure response prevention. Um, the, a great resource is to just go on the international OCD foundation website. Um, there's a list of therapists who are accredited. I'm going to make a note of that just to put it in the show notes for sure. That's, that's kind of like done that before the standard, um, there's tons of resources on there. Um, I do think there are a lot of therapists who, who are very qualified at treating OCD with ERP who are not on the website yet. So I don't think it's always like only these people can treat it. Um, but I will say, I see, I see some professionals advertising OCD treatment without saying that they treat ERP through ERP. Okay. Um, And I would, I would just as a standard, always say, if you know, it's OCD, you've got that diagnosis, you want ERP. It's the only research evidence-based treatment for this along with, you know, we've got DBT and some, um, act skills in there that we're putting in, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of supplement the treatment, but we've got to be doing exposures to be able to really get in there. Yeah. Um, So that's what I'm looking for. If I'm looking for an OCD specific therapist, Okay, but it's, yeah, it's hard. And OCD is one of the easier ones that way because OCD ERP just kind of connects. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're in a different field, if you're, if you're needing help for trauma, I mean, you've, you've got a long list of different ways that are evidence-based that can really help you. Um, And sometimes you've got to try more than one of them before you find the one that really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, there is a textbook of knowledge that it feels like it's really important. Like I wish they taught it in schools. I wish mm-hmm. that there was like a psychological literacy yes, <laughs> so that people yeah. could know what they're accessing and what they need so that they can be their own advocates instead of just mm-hmm. Like kind of like what you said, it's like, well, you're the professional, so I'm gonna know, yeah, follow what you say, and I mean, get a second opinion, right? Have multiple eyes on you. Your mental health is so important to your well being, and every therapist does it differently. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so interesting how, yeah, just how it's actually not interesting at all. It's frustrating how intricate it is. And it is, but I, but I do think, yes, I appreciate that you validated and I wanted to revalidate that it is, it's a, it's a journey. It's a process. I, I think anyone that is at the cusp or the beginning of this journey, yes, needs to understand that it takes time, but that there are resources available. Yeah. Yeah. And just stick with it. Mm -hmm. I say all that when you find when you find one, oh, it's worth yeah. it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So good when you find one and you follow them. And like, I, I would move anywhere to follow some of the therapists that I've had. It's just, it feels like such an important, really healing connection, but yeah, you gotta, not every person's going to match with every yeah. one. That- yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to clear Well, not clarify, but add in. So on a lot of my podcasts, I've taught about about ERP, and I've taught about even the DPT, but I've used different <laughs> words. So, like, so for my audience, 
the, and I've talked about exposure response prevention, ERP, but that's a lot of what I talk about simply facing your fears like that. That's kind of uh, the layman's term. So yeah. when you're doing exposures, that is literally you're facing the thing that you fear the most. And then like the skills, the DB, what is the, what is that acronym stand for? I can't remember. DBT. DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah. So which whatever, like that doesn't make any sense, exactly. to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's like, same. that's like mindfulness skills. Yeah. And emotion, emotional regulation, things like that, which is all yeah. stuff that I've talked about. So though, like I said, I've talked about those so much <laughs> to my audience. So I hope they know how important that is. And that's why it's so important if you are dealing with anxiety or OCD to look for someone that is going to treat you using right. those uh, methods. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Can we go through a little bit more now that we have talked about ERP and all and DBT? Can you give me maybe an example of some kind of subset or something that you would see happening with someone either with OCD or we could do, you could do generalized anxiety, social anxiety, something like that. Maybe we could do a couple examples of, you know, what it would look like in what their life would kind of look like. And then what would be an example of an exposure that you would recommend and yeah. then, um, maybe some skills or something too? Yeah, sure. Um, there are so many different, I know. Things. <laughs> I think some of the ones that I see the most just, you know, practicing in Utah, mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to debate, maybe I want to do some that are less common to kind of give space for some people. I think, you know, in the media, we see a lot of the contamination, OCD, the hand washing. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, we see a lot of the just right in the media too. That would be like the light switches, you know, all of mm -hmm. those kind of really stereotypical um, outward compulsions. Yeah. I think almost all of my clients are so much more significantly tortured by the internal mental compulsions mm -hmm. than the outward ones. Um, which makes it so much harder to catch, right. Yeah. And feel so much more isolating because all of the compulsive things that they're feeling like they're doing are essentially this mental gymnastics act that they're needing to do in their own heads. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot just on a side note, cause I have talked about Mark, my husband, that's a lot him yes. and that, and so, and in some ways it's harder to talk about too. Yeah. And yeah, and harder sometimes even for me to like share on the podcast and stuff too, because sometimes it just is so like, feels so personal, right. those kind of mental compulsions. Yes. So I think, I mean, let's talk about, I know you had an episode on scrupulosity, but mm -hmm. that's one that we see a lot in Utah. Mm -hmm. um, so scrupulosity is like religious, moral OCD. Um, it can be so, so many different shapes and sizes. Um, so let's say, you know, we have a kiddo who is religious and has religious values in their family. Um, and they are in school and they're walking the hallways and they will not take their eyes off the floor. Um, so, you know, they're bumping into things. They, they don't know where they're going. They're not, they're not seeing anything in the world around them. Um, or maybe they're even walking like with their entire body facing the wall, right. They're just kind of following walls. Mm -hmm. um, so in theory, and this is obviously all hypothetical, um, that kiddo could be having intrusive thoughts about chastity, right. I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to look at a girl. And if I look at a girl too long, I'm going to have these intrusive thoughts, um, you know, did I look at them too long? Was I attracted to them? Was I aroused? Um, is that breaking the law of chastity? What were my intentions, right? Then we're spinning, right? Now we've got all of these spinning intrusive thoughts, right? That's the O of OCD. Um, and the compulsion is, well, I'm going to look at the floor or I'm going to look at the wall. And if I do that, my OCD is telling me I'm going to be protected, right? I'm, Cause then I'm going to know for sure I didn't break the law of chastity. Um, and so that's the C, right? That's the compulsive behavior. Um, 
And so exposures for scrupulosity are really interesting because I think there's kind of a misconception about exposure therapy that sometimes we're asking people to do these things that are so outlandish. Yeah. And it really is a turnoff for a lot of people. I've had to talk quite a few people off a ledge of you're going to put a tarantula in my hair and right. Right. Done that in multiple years of OCD treatment. <laughs> um, what we're shooting for is we want exposures that are socially acceptable. Um, so things that, you know, any other human would hope to be able to do. Yeah. Um, I would not wish to have a tarantula in my hair. So I am not right. going to expect that that is a behavior that my client needs to do. Yeah. Um, however, I have had clients who were vets and they actually need to hold snakes. Um, and in that case, that is a totally socially appropriate behavior, even though I wouldn't hold a snake probably. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so we want to make sure that they're socially acceptable. They're going to help give them a fulfilling full life and they have to be values consistent. Um, and that is probably the trickiest piece with scrupulosity Yeah. Um, because what OCD is doing is it's kind of skewing what the value actually is. Right. right. Um, so in this example with this kiddo, we would talk about, you know, what is, what is the commandment here, right? Let's go into your, your personal religious, um, literature. What, what is written down? Mm-hmm. We're not going to touch that right? It is not an appropriate exposure to ask somebody to do something that is against their belief set ever. Right. And to my knowledge in most religious communities, it is not a rule that you have to look at the floor a hundred percent. Right. Um, if it was, then that would be a really interesting treatment protocol yeah, and we can navigate around that. Um, but in that case, it might not be a compulsion, right? That might right. Just be yeah. Um, and so some of the exposures we would do for that client is we would say, what are some things that you would actually want to be able to do? Right. What if, what if your family wants to take you on a cruise, mm-hmm. right? What if you want to sit by the pool? Um, and you know, there's people in bathing suits Yeah. and they may be in bathing suits that are, you know, kind of what, you, whatever your modesty standards are. And there may be people who aren't right. And what are we going to do about that? Because we want you to be able to go to the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, what if, what if you want to watch the Olympics, mm-hmm. right? What if you want to be able to sit down and watch beach volleyball, You're not wearing a whole ton of clothes. Um, right. and what if that's like a family event that you guys want to be able to participate in? Um, so you find these areas of what do you want to be able to do, right? What is this, what's being stolen from you that you wish you could do and OCD is telling you, you can't, and that's where we're going to head. Um, and then the skills come in, in the way that these patterns are ingrained, right? So if I just throw someone into an exposure and I say, good luck, go watch some beach volleyball. Well, that, that kiddo is not going to look at the screen, right? They can't, they're looking at the floor everywhere they walk. They're certainly not going to be able to keep their eyes on it. Um, and if they do, there's going to be a lot of mental compulsions that are happening in their brain to try to pacify that OCD. And so the skill set, the DBT comes in to really teach them how to do an exposure and resist the compulsion. Um, so that's the response prevention piece of ERP, right? Is it's okay. not all about go into the shark tank and figure it out. It's right. how can we be in the shark tank and react differently than our OCD tells us we need to, to be safe. Um, and so yeah. I mean, we could talk forever. I've got like thousands and thousands of exposures that I've created. Um, but I do think that it's important to always recognize that we're shooting for you being able to do things in your life that you wish you could. And if you're not yeah. interested, that's not an exposure, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if I want you to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about what you want to be able to do. And that's where your exposures are going to come from. I love that. And I love that yeah, I, I think sometimes we do get lost, even I do, in remembering what this is all about. Like, it's not about um, shutting up yes. <laughs> the anxiety or, um, you know, running away from it. it it's, it's about being able to live a life where these thoughts may still come, but we have power and ability and courage to 
still move through life and do the things we want and need to do. Right. Yes. Regardless of whatever that voice is telling you, right. Instead Mm -hmm. of, and I think that's such a good summary, the way you just put that, because so many clients come in and you know, what's your goal? Oh, make this stop. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's where I was. Yep. (laughs) How how do we get this to go away? How can can we make it so that these irrational thoughts are not there? Right. Right. And a big piece of that beginning stage of radical acceptance is, yeah, we can't do that. Right. That's, this is a chronic, really debilitating, highly misunderstood diagnosis, and it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, jumping in regardless, instead of, well, I'm going to wait until my OCD tells me it's okay. Right. I'm going to wait until it's quiet, or I'm going to wait until I've done enough compulsions that I'm safe, right. You're going to be waiting eternally and you're going to be so exhausted from all the compulsions regardless. So yeah, recognizing this is, this is a thing it's around. It's a little friend on my shoulder. Who's trying to protect me and I don't need protection that way. I've, yeah. I've got this, even though I'm going to feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have another example? You share one more example. I think examples and stories are so helpful Yeah, because I think let's, relate to them. Let's talk about harm OCD because okay. I feel like this is a really stigmatized one. Okay. Um, or even, even pedophilic OCD. Those are two that I think. Yeah. And I don't think I did not even know harm was like, I was like, Oh, okay. I can kind of relate to that. But when I heard about pedophilic, that was like, what? So I think even just brushing on that topic. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I have worked with at this point, every kind of OCD. I truly don't know if I can pick one that I feel like is the worst. Yeah. I do think that pedophilic OCD is one of the ones that comes with the most shame. Yeah. And I think as therapists, we'd be really remiss to, you can't just do exposures. you got to heal the whole person. you got to leave room for grief work. You've got to work on the shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think with POCD, the really devastating thing is the population that I see this in the most is new parents. Interesting. Okay. So can you explain what's going on? Yeah. So pedophilic OCD is essentially intrusive thoughts that have a sexual pedophilic nature. Mm -hmm. Um, What we know about OCD is it tends to grab the things that you love the most. Yeah. Um, So it makes sense. You know, we just talked about scrupulosity. It's going to try to grab your religious values. That's very precious to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, for parents, what, what could it grab that would be worse than your child's right? Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of new or even expecting parents, um, and especially for women, I mean, there's so many hormone shifts that happen in that time, which can affect OCD. Um, so, you know, you give birth to your child and you're putting them in the car seat, right? You're strapping them in Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden that vicious monster, why did you put your hand there? Did you just graze them? Did you do that on purpose? Did you want to graze them? Did you feel pleasure from grazing them? Um, what, what a horrific to be tortured by. And these people, I want to be super clear are not pedophiles, right? They are so distressed by these thoughts that oftentimes these people will never touch their babies, right? Because, well, if there's even a 1% chance that I really did that, well, now I can never be unsupervised with my child because what type of monster am I, right? Just so much shame. Mm-hmm. The difference is OCD is always, we call it ego dystonic, which means it's not in sync with who you are. You feel distressed by those thoughts mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to ego syntonic, which is when it's sunk with who you are as a human. Right. Um, So again, you think of what exposures would be for somebody like that. Mm -hmm. It is obviously not societally accepted. We're not, we're not going and doing any weird stuff for exposures. All you need to do is carry your baby, right? Can we carry the baby? Can we, 
can we move and do bath time? Right. What are the things you want to be able to do to connect with your baby? Can you take your baby alone and not have someone else supervising you? I mean, I've had parents who are literally never alone. I've had parents installing cameras all over their house and, you know, they're going to bed and they're rewatching this footage to make sure they didn't do anything. Um, and so, yeah, again, the exposures are always, what do you want to be able to do that OCD is telling you you can't, um, most of the time with that one, you're just spending time with, with your own baby. If it, if it happens to someone who does not have their own child, which definitely does happen, um, you know, can you, can you go to the park? Can you read a book on the park, on the park bench where other kids may or may not be around you and maybe you have an intrusive thought about them and maybe you don't, um, either way, it's still an effective exposure. You're teaching your brain, you're learning that you can do it. You can sit on the park bench. You can be in places you can, you know, walk by a school at pickup time. Um, there's tons and tons of things that we can do. Um, I've used dolls before as kind of a middle path. Um, can you carry a baby doll? Can you change a baby doll's diaper? Um, so there's lots of, that's the creative part, right. That we talked about earlier. There's so many different ways to kind of get in there and try to disrupt the pattern. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's definitely one that it's less talked about. I feel people get less help for that one because there is so much shame. Um, I mean, I think almost all of my clients with POCD, those first couple sessions, I mean, there's legitimate fear that they think I'm going to call the police. Yeah. Yeah. They really are worried that these thoughts are fact and that they represent who they are and the immense amount of relief that comes to them when they receive a diagnosis and they understand that they're not the only ones who are having this, Mm -hmm. uh, that can, that can be really healing in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad we talked about that. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it's a heavy one for sure. Yeah, it is. Um, so let's switch gears just a little bit towards support people, which, you know, that's, that's been my role. And, um, <clears throat> I actually was talking with my daughter about this interview and I, and I was having her help me like with questions and the one and only question she wanted me to ask was what do support people do? that they think is helpful, but isn't because she said she remembers like one of the first times that we, she and I went to therapy together. And I think we filled out, I filled out an accommodation form. (laughs) I still remember. Oh, and I'm, I'm getting caught off guard because I did, I wasn't going to, I didn't think about sharing this memory, but I remember, I remember filling out that form and just like, it was shocking to me all the things that I had been doing that I thought were helping because as a mother, as a wife, you know, people that are listening, that are support people, all we want to do is help. And so we do our very, very best. And I think that is one of my biggest whys of this podcast and everything I do is all that I have learned um, just has been so eye-opening for me. Yeah. Those things that I was doing that I thought were so helpful were making it worse. Yeah. And I, and I have gone through the process. I do not really harbor any, any guilt anymore. I did, but I, I recognize, and that's why I want, yeah, to start off by saying this is not something that we're talking about in order to create or, um, start feelings of guilt. This is empowering. Yeah. That's what it did for me. Like we want to help people and do it in the very best way. And I think, yeah, your experience and expert knowledge is so valuable here to be able to help us to know how we can help as support yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It. I think that that is a good example that this is traumatic, right? Even just like having that memory pop up for you and feeling those really strong emotions. 
I do not think it's possible to understate how truly traumatic it can be as a support person um, to help and love someone who's suffering from this. Um, so yeah, I think that's an awesome question. I think I would preface with a few disclaimers that every single parent or support person is doing the best that they can. Yes. They do the best that they can with what they know. And then when you know differently, you do differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a big grief cycle in that, like you mentioned guilt, Um, there's a lot of emotions that come up as a parent when you do learn differently. And I think just right off the bat, recognizing that there really isn't a right or wrong. And sometimes these support people are just surviving. Right. And if, if that's all we can do, that's what we're doing right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's a big thing. The other disclaimer that I want to give is that it's tricky because there's so many things that we could talk about. And I'm always hesitant to recommend that support people pull some of these accommodations that I'll talk about Okay. because it, what it does is when support people change their behaviors, it often creates more stress for the person who's suffering Yes. What's hard is if you're in a program like IOP where you're all supported and you know that your kiddo or spouse is learning skills. Mm -hmm. Awesome. They're supervised and being coached and supported through this process of changing a family system that way. Um, But I've sometimes had parents come to me who are just at the very beginning, right? Their, their kiddos aren't in therapy yet. And they say, great, should I just stop doing all of these things. Right. And I'm like, be careful with that because mm-hmm. it's going to make it harder for the client. And we need to make sure that they also have support to navigate when you do pull back okay. in that way. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's so many things that support people can do. Um, and to just make sure that you're not making giant rifts without the support, making sure that you're the actual client, the person suffering from these symptoms has help. Um, but on a general basis, the one I see the most is accommodations. So how often are support people just doing whatever they can to try to protect their loved ones from exposures? Um, so my, my kiddo is afraid of this, so I'm just going to do it for them. Um, or I'm going to call the teacher and make up an excuse and explain why they're not there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to tell them they don't have to go to this family activity or they don't have to participate in, they don't have to go to school, right? Right. They don't just don't go because I can tell how stressful it is. You'll be less stressed if you're home. Um, all of those are done with so much good intention and love. Yeah. And what we know is happening is that that child has just learned that they can't do it. Right. That the way out is to avoid or to have someone do it instead of them. Um, and what we always want to do is empower the individual to know that they can do it. Um, but it is true that they might not be able to do it on their own with the toolbox that they have in that moment. Okay. Um, I do think the one thing that support people can do immediately, like a listener of the podcast who yeah. has never been a therapist before, is validating. Yes. Um, validating and to watch out for that invalidation and you can make that change immediately. So I can't even tell you how many people like the most loving, supportive people too, who are just still getting stuck in some of these invalidating statements. So (laughs) not to, it's so hard not to, because so many of these things seem so unbelievably irrational. Yes. And sometimes we're saying, you know, the simple sentence of that's dramatic, cut it out. That doesn't make any yeah. sense. You're, mm-hmm. That's not a big uh, deal. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, and, and There's nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're saying that out of, out of support, right? Yes. yes. Don't worry. That's not a big deal. Yes. And the reality is if that was working, that kid will probably already would be doing it right? That I am, I am confident that that kid has probably already tried to tell themselves that it's not a big deal a hundred times. Yeah. What we know is that it is a big deal for one reason or another. 
even if it doesn't make any sense, their brain is telling them it's a big deal. So telling them it isn't mm-hmm. is doing nothing. In fact, it could be doing damage because what it's damaging is your relationship. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think watching out for those sentences mm-hmm. and upping your game on your validation, which seems so simple. Um, but I always tell parents to start with, um, just your senses, right? If you don't know where to start, just mm-hmm. say what you see, say what you hear. Um, I can see you're really upset. I can hear that this is really stressful for you. Um, you never want to jump to conclusions, but just stating and observing and noticing without judgment, um, it's going to feel like you're not doing much. Yeah. You're not yes. Anything. I can right? vouch for that. <laughs> Yeah. It feels like there's supposed to be a follow-up. Yeah. And I think at least with my, so I I think I'm 45. So at least my generation and probably older, it also feels, it has felt unnatural too. Like it feels like, oh, I, like I sound like, I don't even know, but it's been hard for me to practice that too, where I'm like, oh, this, I can see this is hard for you. Like, I'm like, what is coming out of my mouth? (laughs) But I keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the more you practice, the more you can find a way. I mean, I'm giving kind of a script, but yeah, of course you want to find a way to make it feel like it's natural to who you are as a human. Mm -hmm. And there are different ways to phrase it that might feel more comfy. Um, But yeah, I think that's a good point is this is not the way that we learn to talk to each other, right? Right. We have not been often inherently told how to speak and communicate and validate. Um, And it's an extremely powerful tool. I always tell people um, when they're learning this to pay attention to what their therapist is doing. And more often than not, one of the most common things that's happening in therapy session is you're being validated. Um, You're just being validated over and over and over again. It's like the first thing you learn in grad school is pick what they're saying, say it back to them. Um, And there is something so powerful and it's so easy. Yeah. It's like the easiest thing you can do. It feels like you're not doing barely anything, but it feels so good as the recipient to know that someone sees what's going on. They see me, they hear me, yeah. they can't fix it. They're not necessarily doing anything to solve it, but they are here with me and they get it. Yes. Um, so that's something that any support, even not, this isn't even specific to OCD, right? I yeah, think the whole right. A happier, more connected place if we could all improve our validating skills. So just recognizing that you can validate something, even if you don't understand it, even if it seems totally irrational, even if it's not your same experience, Yeah, that's the differentiation there of, even though that's not happening for me, I can still see it's happening for you. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. I think that's going to be so helpful for all of us. Okay. As we close, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel like could be shared? Oh my gosh. I'm sure we, I know. And I think actually Steph, you're coming back on. So (laughs) (laughs) I would be happy to back on. This has um, opened up a lot of more questions for me. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to go deeper into that. So yeah, yeah, we, we will do it again for sure. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I think, I think just the biggest thing that I would want people to know is just how horrible it is. I just want to sit in that with them and just, you're not making it up. You're not being a baby. It it's crippling. This is a really, really understated diagnosis and there is a treatment and it's not going to go away, but I know hundreds of people who are living fulfilling, huge, happy, satisfying lives with their OCD friend on their shoulder. And there's a way to get there. It can be excruciating. It's really uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's worth getting help and knowing that you're not by yourself. So I think that would be my main takeaway is just it, this is real. It's a real thing. It's horrible. And there's help. I love it. I love it. Thank you. And yes, you will be back. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll talk to you again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining me, Betsy Russell, on the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm so glad you're here and honored that you've taken the time in your busy schedule to join me for honest conversations about anxiety. It brings me so much joy to shine the light on anxiety. Will you leave a rating and review? Just scroll down to the bottom of this episode, hit the five star, and write a little comment about how this has helped you. This helps my podcast get seen and help others. Also, I'd love to see what you're doing while you're listening to this podcast. So snap a selfie and tag me at Untangling Anxiety and post it on Instagram. We'll see you next week.